what a great opportunity to worship together. Thank you for worshiping us, or worshiping the Lord with us on campus and online. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we uh, spend time in His Word this morning. Uh, Lord, as we come before you, we are so grateful, so grateful to be a part of the body of Christ because of the finished work of Christ by grace through faith. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, read your word, hear your word, respond to your word. But Lord, none of that happens uh, unless the Spirit of God goes before us. And so, Lord, we ask that as the Holy Spirit of God goes before us, Lord, that you would give us uh, the very truth that you need us to hear uh, in each of our lives. And Lord, that that truth will uh, resonate so deeply. Lord, that they would be uh, an amazing response of trust and faith in you as we apply that truth uh, to our lives today. Lord, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 19. Uh, John chapter 19. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I'd encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1003. 1003. We're specifically going to focus in on verses uh, 25 through 27. There'll be a little bit of a buildup there. Uh, But we have been walking through uh, a series entitled uh, Words from the Cross as we've uh, set out to unpack the very, uh, the seven sayings that Jesus said when he was nailed uh, to the cross. And and our desire uh, is to look at those in sequential order. And one of the realities that we come to find oftentimes uh, in, in the scripture is there's, in this particular case, uh, there's not one particular gospel writer that has all seven of them, of them together. So you have to look at the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see where those seven sayings come from. And uh, through uh, the information that is given and the context that is given, you begin to be able to put uh, these particular sayings in the order in which Jesus would have said those things. And what happens is, uh, it, those first three sayings, Uh, would have occurred between uh, 9 a.m. and uh, 12 noon on that Good Friday morning. And so these first three sayings, we looked at the first two, uh, the previous two weeks, and those first two sayings we looked at uh, specifically in Luke uh, chapter 23, uh, the first saying being that Father, uh, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I love that uh, prayer because it's uh, in the present active tense, meaning that Jesus kept on praying that prayer. So as they're mocking him, as they're nailing him to the cross, as all these things are happening, Uh, Jesus is praying to his Father, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. And that second saying that we saw in Luke uh, 23 uh, would have occurred right after this, uh, shortly after this. Remember, there's uh, two criminals, uh, one on each side of Jesus, and and one of those criminals uh, is recognizing his need uh, for Jesus to save him from sin. And uh, uh, he says, Jesus, I, I want you to remember me. And what does Jesus say in response? This is the second saying, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's not just a prayer of forgiveness, but Jesus declares over this particular man that you are going to be saved, right? What an amazing power testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the midst of that horrific darkness and evil and pain, that the first two things that Jesus cries out says is, Father, forgive them, and today you will be with me in paradise. There's forgiveness and salvation at the foot of the cross. Isn't that amazing? 
And we add to that this morning, looking at the third saying from the cross. We're going to turn our attention to the book of John. And here we see just amazing words of affection, comfort, and love. That those first three sayings deal with us, specifically. Forgive them, Lord, I desire to save them, and I desire to show love, comfort, and affection towards them. And, and it's an amazing picture. And again, we're going to look specifically at verses 25 through 27. But I, because of uh, the account that John gives, I, I want us to see, beginning in verse 1, some of the details that he has. And that's one of the beauties. If you take all uh, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you, and you put them together... Uh, each, each gospel writer through the Holy Spirit of God has a different perspective, a different personality that goes into it, a different reason on why they're writing what they're writing. And so it's important to put all these things together. And John has some things in there uh, that, that we'll point out as we read through. But we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to work our way through. So there is a lot of scripture today, but I pray that it just resonates on your heart and your mind this morning that you will respond to the Lord. Uh, we begin in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they're kind of blackmailing Pilate to a degree. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And that's important because uh, up until this point, we know uh, that, that we're not quite at that noon time, that sixth hour. So uh, how is John utilizing time here? Uh, is it possible that he's going back to Roman time, how the Romans uh, identify time? Well, it's probably not likely because in the, all the occasions that John writes about time in the Gospel of John, he never uses the Roman tradition of time. He always uses the Jewish tradition of time. And so uh, the way that I look at this sixth hour is the time in which Jesus was arrested, approximately sometime between midnight and 2 a.m., to this point where they're at, about six hours has transpired. And the scripture says, he said to the Jews, behold your king. 
They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out. And that phrase, went out, is important because it says that the, refer, the phrase there is talking about Jesus' willingness to go. Jesus is not resisting. He's not trying to stop it. He's willingly going to where they're taking him. And where are they taking him? He's bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Verse 18. There they crucified him and with two others, the criminals, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And that harkens back to a previous account in the Gospels. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Jesus Christ from Nazareth. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription from the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written Aramaic. That would have been the common language for the Jews. Uh, in Latin, that's the common language for the governmental officials. And in Greek, that would have been the common language for the Roman people. And so you have this picture that, that this is a global Savior, right? Everybody can see what is written above the head of Jesus. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. And the Jewish people would often have five pieces. Uh, the first four that are mentioned uh, is the sandals, kind of like a headpiece. Uh, you would have your outer garment and then like a girdle or sash or a belt. Uh, but he also had a tunic, the scripture says. Now, this tunic would have been that inner garment, uh, most likely probably made by his own mother, Mary. Uh, and the scripture says, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And this would have been similar to that of what the Old Testament priest would have wore. And so it's kind of this picture that Jesus is what? He's our great high priest. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for, for it to see whose it shall be. So this is a very valuable piece of clothing. This was also to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. That's a quote from Psalm 22, uh, verse 18. And then now we get to uh, verse 25 through 27. The scripture says in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so we have these four women that are mentioned. Mary Magdalene, we see her in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She's the, the woman that was possessed by seven demons, and guess what? Jesus set her free. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, she's mentioned in Mark uh, chapter 15, verse 40. She was the mother of chi uh, two of Jesus' disciples. You have uh, James the lesser, uh, or younger, and Yossi uh, would have been one of those disciples. And then James, the mother, uh, Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, and then also her sister uh, Salome, that she was also mentioned in uh, Mark uh, 15, verse 40. Uh, she had the, the sons of De Zebedee, right? The sons of thunder. Remember James and John uh, trying to see who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand. Uh, and, and these would have been uh, Jesus' cousins. So when we think about the apostle John, uh, he is a cousin of Jesus. 
And then the scripture says, uh, and this is another beautiful picture. The women were the last to be at the cross and the first to see Jesus res- resurrected, right? Isn't that pretty awesome? Like, to know that he's not in the grave any longer. Uh, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's the apostle John, uh, Jesus' cousin, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And that's where we want to focus this morning, uh, verse 26 and 27. So we have this amazing picture. Uh, six hours of integri- interrogation. Uh, Jesus has been flogged or whipped. Uh, he's been hit. He's been mocked. He's been uh, nailed to the cross, uh, roughly three hours on the cross. Uh, and he's bearing the sin of the world, the wrath of God. And while the soldiers are gambling over his clothing, the five people are grieving over what they're witnessing, and Jesus speaks words of tremendous love, comfort, and affection. Woman, behold your son, and then to John, behold your mother. This is a great reminder to us that Jesus not only cares about our eternity, he also cares about our present circumstances, right? And what do we see in verses 26 and 27? What characteristics of love are being displayed on the cross that meet the present circumstances? One, a love that sees. A love that sees. The scripture says in verse 26, the first part, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. The word saw communicates a word of compassion. Uh, Jesus not only, again, cares about our eternity, cares about our present circumstances. Do you believe that? Do you think that's true? That's what Jesus is displaying on the cross here. Uh, just like in Matthew 9, when uh, we encounter a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus saw her and felt compassion on her, and he healed her. Just like in Matthew 14, when Jesus steps off that boat and he sees the great crowd of people before him, right before he feeds the 5,000, the scripture says that he saw them, had compassion for them. Luke 19, when Jesus is going through the town and he's on that road and he gets to that very spot and he looks up into the tree and he sees who? Zacchaeus. He says, I'm coming to fellowship with you today. So Jesus sees with all the commotion in that dark and dreadful day, Jesus is barely clinging to life. And on that day, at that exact hour, Jesus sees their pain, the pain of his mother, Mary. Now it's important for us to recognize that in no way are we to worship Mary. But we can acknowledge and celebrate God's story in her testimony, right? Remember where the story began in Mary's life when the angel Gabriel announced to her that she was going to bear a son. Luke 1, 28, the scripture says, And he, talking about the angel Gabriel, came to her, talking about Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So God gives her a promise of amazing grace. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so she has a promise of a son. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So God gives her a promise to do the impossible, right? And then you skip down to verse 38, Luke chapter 1. The scripture says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so we see in Mary this incredible humility. I am a servant of the Lord. Now, fast forward just a little bit. Jesus is born. Uh, he's eight days old. And as in Jewish custom, they would take uh, their son to uh, the temple to be circumcised. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke 2. So Jesus is eight days old. And the scripture says in verse 25, uh, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And so this salvation work is going to be for all. Verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And then verse 34, this is important. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Think about it. In that moment, Mary knows that one day in the future, the pain of hopelessness, helplessness, and grief will come. That literally, her sword, the, the, a sword will pierce, pierce her very soul. And that prophecy that was spoken in Luke chapter 2 is now some 30 years later being fulfilled right before her very eyes. Her eyes see and her heart feels what is happening to Jesus, her son. The baby that was once carried in her own wound is now being crucified on the cross next to criminals. In that one moment, all those years of joy, raising her baby boy, giving birth to him, nursing him, swaddling him, caring for him, watching him, being amazed by him as he grew into perfect manhood. All those joys of motherhood are being challenged with the pain of tremendous heartbreak. She stands there, hopeless, helpless, grieving, as she hears the crowds mock her son, the soldiers beat her son, strip him of his clothes, rob him of all dignity. And the very forehead that she once kissed is now crowned with a crown of thorns. The very hands that she once held are now being pierced with nails. For 30 years, Mary lived under the shadow of the cross. And now the shadow is real and it is raw. And in that moment, Jesus sees her pain.
But Jesus also sees John's pain as well. For John, as he looks to the cross, you know, his pain might be a little bit different. It might be the pain of shame and weakness. How so? Well, right before Jesus was arrested and crucified, we read in Matthew 26 these words. Then Jesus said to them, talking about his disciples, he says, You will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So when Jesus says, for this is written, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah when the prophecy was given in Zechariah 13, 7. On this very night that Jesus is arrested, the disciples will fall away. They will scatter. They will separate themselves from Jesus. They, they are not going to identify with Jesus on that very night. In verse 34, the scripture says that, that on that night, Jesus says to Peter, he says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You remember that? And what is the response? Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then that phrase, and all the disciples said the same. No, Jesus, we're not going to separate ourselves from you. Jesus, no, there's not going to be a time where we're going to not identify with you. In verse 56, the scripture says, But all this had taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples did what? They left him and fled. And so it's possible that John is there at the foot of the cross with the pain of shame and weakness. Why? Because John also separated himself from Jesus. But the question is, what, what brought him back? So he scattered, now he's back. He's back at the foot of the cross. What, what brings us back? The grace of our Lord is what brings us back, and that's exactly what drew John back as well. In verse 56, where the scripture says that all the disciples left Jesus, the word left here is the same word that Jesus used for forgive in that very first saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So where the disciples left, separated themselves from Jesus, Jesus in his prayer prays, Father, forgive them, separate their sin from them. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And now we get this new perspective on John. What perspective? Well, the scripture says that, that John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's interesting that John is the only one that does this. No other gospel writer does that. It seems a little arrogant. It seems a little prideful, right? But why does he do that? I mean, John, of all people, should know better, right? He spent three and a half years with Jesus, and within a matter of hours... He shared a meal with Jesus. Now he's scattered from Jesus. He's separated from Jesus. And you would think that out of anybody, John would have understood what it meant to be near Jesus. Is John somehow thinking he's better than everybody else? Not at all. When John uses the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's a phrase of actual great humility. John is actually saying, of all people I know, I know I am loved by Jesus. I know. Man, what, what a display of grace and love at the cross. 
That even in the pain of grief or the pain of shame and weakness and wandering, Jesus sees me, sees you, and he loves you. Jesus' eyes of compassion sees everything and the grace and love displayed on the cross meets you where you are every single time. You see, Jesus doesn't ignore them just like he doesn't ignore us. He meets us right where we are. And at the cross where Jesus died for me, And died for you, it reminds us that even in the midst of my pain, my grief, my heartbreak, even in my wandering shame and weakness, guess what? With great love, he sees me and he sees you. The second characteristic of love is a love that cares, a love that cares. In his hour of crucifixion, Jesus showed deep care for both Mary and John. The scripture says in the second part of verse 26, leading into the first part of verse 27, he said, and that's an immediate phrase, he said immediately at the moment that he saw them, he said to his mother, woman, behold, that's a command of experience, your son. Then he said to the disciple, John, behold, again, a command with experience, your mother. And it's interesting that when you see this and you see the other accounts of the gospel that that Jesus never refers to Mary as who? His mother. When he speaks, he speaks of her as not mom, but in this case, what does he say? He says, woman. Now, there's several reasons for that, and that's important. Uh, It's a reminder to us that Mary is not divine, right? She's not some higher being. She's not necessary for our salvation, our redemption. Again, we acknowledge God's story in her testimony, right? We celebrate that, but we certainly don't worship her. Second, the word woman is an honorable term. It's not a sign of disrespect, right? So I'm, but I'm not encouraging men to go home and say to your wife, woman, come here, you know. There's a cultural context here, so don't, don't, don't come to me and say, I tried it and it didn't work because it's not going to work, right? I'll send that to Tommy, Pastor Tommy, right? Uh, it's a word of honor. You know, Jesus has always elevated and valued and the dignity of women. No one has ever done it greater than him, and no one will ever do it greater than him. He has always esteemed women. Think about uh, the Samaritan woman in John 4. He met her where she was at, right? Think about in John chapter 8, the woman that was caught in adultery, right? Do you think for one moment the Samaritan woman at the well or the woman that was caught in adultery for one moment felt disrespected or devalued by Jesus. No, everybody else around them is what devalued them and disrespected them. Jesus elevated them. Third, Jesus is her Savior just as much as he is our Savior. And that's important. In fact, when you see Mary's own testimony of Jesus, that's what she says. When the angel Gabriel came to her and announced that she would be carrying God's only son, she says this in Luke 1, 46 through 47, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, Jesus is dying for her sins, too. She was a disciple of Jesus, just like John was a disciple of Jesus, just like we are disciples of Jesus. So yes, in one sense, Mary lost a son at the cross, but in reality, at the cross, she saw her Savior. And when Jesus says, woman, behold your son, John, behold your mother, Jesus is showing her tremendous honor. He's actually fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling the law. Remember the fifth commandment. 
Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So during the greatest and darkest moment of all of human history, Jesus obeys God's word to the end, right? He's honoring his mother. He's making sure that after he dies, right, he's in no position to care for her, that she'll be cared for. Remember, there's no 401k, there's no social security plan, there's med- no Medicaid plan, there's no you know, food stamps, none of that stuff, right? And so we find ourselves with, with Mary here. And John is, uh, Jesus is commissioning John, commanding John to care for Mary. Mary most likely is in her 50s. Uh, her husband, uh, to the best that we can tell, uh, Joseph is likely deceased. Uh, we don't know for sure when that happened. Uh, it's quite possible that Joseph died sometime in the middle of Jesus' teenage years. Uh, what we do know in Scripture is, according to Luke 2, uh, when Jesus was 12 years old and he got left at the temple, you remember that story? Uh, that's the last time that we hear about Joseph. So we pretty, pretty, pretty much we can guarantee that Mary was a widow at this time. And as the firstborn son, Jesus cared for his mother. Now the question is, uh, why didn't Jesus give the care of his mother to one of his half-brothers, right? Uh, we know that Mary and Joseph had their own children together. Mark 4 tells us that he had at least four brothers or half-brothers and two half-sisters. Uh, why didn't one of them get tasked with the ministry of caring for her? You know, John is at best her nephew, right? On the cross, Jesus is reminding us that the most important care isn't just physical, but it's also spiritual. It reminds us that, that these half-brothers and sisters, they weren't believers yet. They didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, John 7, 5 tells us that none of them were disciples of Jesus. In other words, they're non-Christians, right? It's not until after the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that we see that some of his uh, half-brothers and sisters are coming to faith in Christ. And so Jesus is reminding us on the cross the importance of that spiritual family. In fact, Jesus gives uh, some hints about this in uh, Mark chapter 3. He says this, And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, those who were gathered around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so it's a reminder that when Jesus calls us into relationship with him, he's also calling us into what? A new family. A new family. Now, Jesus isn't in any way saying that we are to neglect our physically, physical families. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is that far more superior than our physical families, far more satisfying than our physical family is what? Our spiritual family. The very fact that we are family of God because of the finished work of Christ. So Jesus sees her pain. He sees the pain of John, and he gives John what? He doesn't rebuke John. He gives him one of the highest callings. He repurposes John to care for who? His own mother, Mary. What a beautiful picture of how Jesus shows care for us. Do you find that you're troubled today? Is the pain that you are experiencing 
for any and all reasons, if it be the pain of grief and heartbreak or the pain of uh, wandering, weakness, or separating yourself from the Lord, guess what? We have seasons like that. We're not immune to that. Is that troubling you today? Listen, we can look to the cross and know that not only does Jesus see us with love, but he cares for us in love. Therefore, therefore, we do as 1 Peter instructs us to do. We are to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt us. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. We're never alone. We're never alone. Peter uses the word all. It points to, to the fact that, that God desires for you to throw everything at him, big and small, right? Nothing is insignificant for him and nothing is too big for him. We're free to cast our cares, our fears, our anxieties, our stress, our daily struggles to the Lord. But it's going to take a deliberate, conscious, faithful choice on our part every single day. So all the wandering, all the pain, all the grief, all the heartbreak, all those different things, everything that we go through, we have an opportunity to cast all those things, throw all those things towards him. Why? Because he cares for us. And in the midst of that, we trust that he actually does care for us. But it requires humility, right? How often do we not cast our cares to the Lord because we think we can do it on our own? So there is a humility aspect to it. Humility is dependency on God. We are trusting Philippians 4.19. And my God will do what? He will supply. That is, he will complete every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is a divine promise to all the children of God. So when you look to the cross, there's absolutely no way that we can say that Jesus doesn't care for us. We can choose to go somewhere else, but we cannot say that Jesus does not care for us. The third characteristic that we see about love is a love that gains, a love that gains. I love the last phrase in verse 27. It says, and from that hour, immediately, the disciple John took her, Mary, to his own home. What a beautiful picture. We gain the body of Christ. We gain the family of God. In their greatest pain and need, Jesus cared for them, how? By them gaining one another. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Man, praise God for that. How many times in your own life, when you've hit rock bottom, when you found your place, yourself in the, a deep, dark place, in that valley, and God raises up a portion of the family of God to care for you, to support you, to encourage you. And that's what we're seeing here at the foot of the cross when Jesus tells John to care for his mother and his mother to receive John as her own son. That's exactly what's happening. He's elevating that spiritual family. And it's, it's, it's a reality that though, uh, as God has comforted us, we have an opportunity to comfort those around us. Peter, uh, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So, that's a purpose statement, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any aff aff affliction with the comfort that, uh, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly 
and comfort too. So as God has graciously comforted us, supported us, encouraged us, and supplied for us, we in turn can do what? We can reflect that same love, support, care to those around us. We may look at Jesus' provision for John to care for uh, Mary a little one-sided. I mean, think about it. I mean, in our selfishness, is that a really good deal? I mean, if you're in John's position, you got your own life, right? You mean I got to carry? I got to take care of this lady? I mean, think about your own life right now. What if you had to take care of your own mother-in-law? Right now, everything changed. And your great ministry that God has called you to in this season of life is to care for her. That means you've got to radically change your routine, your focus. Are you going to receive that? Not just for a weekend, but it's possible that, that Mary lived another 12 years. So for 12 years, she's living in your home. And you're caring for her, you're protecting her, you're supplying the needs that she has. You're embracing her into your own family because what? She is your own family. So it's at that moment you think, well, maybe, maybe John didn't get the better end of the deal, but I beg to differ. How so? Can you imagine what John learned about Jesus through the words and the perspective of Mary? Remember what Mary said right after Jesus was born. And all of that stuff was going on between the shepherds and the angels and all the moving and the commotion and all that stuff. She says this in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. From the moment that Gabriel made the announcement to the moment that Jesus was born, she's treasuring all of that experience. They were like food to her soul. And from that moment on, you just got to believe for the next 30 plus years, every experience that she had with Jesus, she's treasuring up. From mealtime around the table to getting him washed and cleaned and feeding him and all those moments, caring for him when he falls and hurts his leg, all those things. And here's John on that very day when he receives Mary into his own home. Man, what a perspective on Jesus to hear story after story after story of Jesus Christ in a way that he probably never heard before. It was almost like Mary was the audible scrapbook in John's life, right? How many of you have scrapbooks in your own home? Praise God, that is not task for men, right? but I certainly do get to enjoy it. And here's John receiving a tremendous gift. The gift of Mary's own words about his Savior. It reminds us that love within the family of God has responsibilities. Love that sees and cares always has responsibilities. So not only do we gain a new family in Christ, but we do gain new responsibilities in Christ. And that new responsibility is to care for one another. Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. 
as we have opportunity. In other words, we leverage every opportunity that we can to not only care for everyone around us, but specifically we care for the needs within the body of Christ. And here's the reality. It's demanding, at times discouraging. It requires more than you're willing to give at times. But what does the scripture say? Don't give up, right? In due time, you will reap a harvest, right? So it's reminded us that we cannot do it in our own strength. We have to do it in the strength that God provides to us. Uh, so we gain this incredible opportunity to love those in our spiritual family, right? To care for them, to meet them where they're at. But we also have an opportunity every day in that love to display the glory of our Savior. How so? Well, right before Jesus uh, went to the cross, he's spending those last moments with his disciples. And he says this in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we look to the cross where Jesus displayed great love, let us see, let us care, and let us realize what we've gained because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Where is God's word landing on you today? Maybe you've walked in here today or joined with us online and you... You forgot that Jesus sees exactly where you're at. And not only sees, but he's willing to care. He's willing to act on your behalf. We have gained a tremendous gift in Christ. We have gained the responsibility to care for one another. But first and foremost, we must put ourselves at the foot of the cross, recognizing that we are truly loved and truly cared for. We will not fulfill the responsibilities that we have and the spiritual family that God has blessed us with, unless we first and foremost remind ourselves each and every day that Jesus sees us where we're at, and he meets us where we're at because he cares for us. So I want to encourage you. Maybe there's a ministry opportunity that God has put right before your eyes. Maybe maybe you're quite possibly caring for your mother or mother-in-law or some dear person that really can't do a whole lot for themselves, and it's just demanding more than you're willing to give. Let the cross be a reminder to you that that ministry is a gift, but that ministry can only.